0: All right, well, grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Acts chapter 5. We are going verse by verse through the book of Acts. And when you go verse by verse through a Bible book, God gets to decide what you're going to talk about every Sunday morning. So even though it's the Christmas season, we are in Acts chapter 5, and the sermon today is called Drop Dead. That's right. The sermon today is called Drop Dead because we are coming upon a passage in the New Testament where God reveals uh, how he will uh, expose and judge sin in his church. It's a very sobering passage. It's a very sobering sermon. And if you haven't been here for the series launch, go back and listen to those sermons because the Holy Spirit fell out uh, was poured out at Pentecost. The church was born and then it was kind of persecuted. They were hauling in the apostles and interrogating them. But this community was vibrant. We are learning so much about what a healthy, godly, humble church community looks like. And because of the mission and because of the need of all of those in this new community, many who were, who were struggling, suffering, and hungry, there was this wave of generosity that, that came about. People were giving. Last week we learned from Pastor Bob when I was down in preaching at one of our sister churches in Joliet. About how the community was strong; they had everything in common, and so today we see that Satan was not going to allow that to go unchallenged. The reason this is a sobering sermon is because it's one of those rare times in Scripture where God immediately and directly and fatally judges two people. There were times in the Old Testament when people were killed immediately for their sin, but it's not the rule; it's the exception. Lot's wife, what did she do? Remember what she did? She looked back. She she looked back with longing for the the city of judgment. angel himself warned her not to look back, and she turned against that message and was turned into a pillar of salt. Ur and Onan, two children of Judah, who had kind of taken the lead in handing Joseph over, they were put to death. Thousands of Egyptians died on Passover night. um, And there was also... Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire. Korah's rebellion, the earth opened up and swallowed them up. Uzzah reached out and touched the ark and he was struck dead. So it's it's there, the ten spies died by direct plague that day. Uh, There were times when judgment came immediately. Now this is not the regular way our God deals with us or the world around us, which is why so many sinful people don't get judged right away, including us. And it's also very rare in the New Testament for God to immediately and severely judge sin, which makes Ananias and Sapphira's case so alarming because they were judged while offering their gift in the church in front of Peter himself. Today we're going to learn how to love God with all of our hearts, and we're going to learn how to fear God and turn from sin. Let's pray. Father, I pray through this jarring, alarming, confusing, disturbing story found in your word that you would teach us to love you. The call is to love you because you loved us, to truly worship and serve you with all of our hearts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we are called to do and to be. Lord, help us also to fear you and to turn from sin because of this example we are given in Scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in Acts chapter 5, let's back up a little bit and just read. It says in verse 34 of chapter 4, There is not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. "...and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet." This wave of generosity was unbelievable. I mean, I'm talking eyebrows up, jaw on the table. You're you're giving what today? And these people sold a land, sold a house, brought the the amount in because they saw the mission. This was first generation. We've got a world to reach, and people need to hear about Jesus. And we've got people, this new community we're forming, 5,000 suddenly are coming, and they're in need. Many of them would have been put out of the synagogue or put out of their family because they trusted Christ. Now we've got to take care of them. There's widows they're trying to take care of who maybe they were reliant on synagogue offerings, whatever, but this was disrupting their lives and now the church was responsible to care for them. People saw this and with genuine love for their brothers and genuine love for the Lord and genuine love for the world, gave generously without even having to be forced or asked. They just did it. It was a beautiful thing. But then there was this couple named Ananias and Sapphira who were looking around at everything, and they saw the people in need, and they saw the church, and they saw the mission, and they saw the apostles, and they saw these people who were being generous, and they made some decisions that would cost them their lives. Let's read what happened. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the language here indicates that there was a commitment to give the full amount. So the keeping back, the holding back, means there was a, a promise or a pledge to sell and give the full amount, and then there was a decision to give only part of it. So understand the problem is not they didn't give the whole thing. The problem is they said they were going to give the whole thing. They committed to giving the whole thing. Then they held some of it back. They laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Wow, wow, wow. We have a lot to discuss. First thing you can write down is this What happened? What happened? There's notes in your bulletin. The context shows that there was a church that was thriving with one heart, mind, and soul. They had a big world to reach. Huge gap between the rich and the poor. The hearts of the wealthy were ignited with love, saying, let's give big. Faith-stretching offerings were coming in. And jot this down. They committed to give a great offering. Ananias and Sapphira committed to give a great offering. It's not said how, but there was an understanding that they had made this commitment. There was probably an understanding publicly that they were going to give as they were talking about selling it. There was this understanding. Peter miraculously learned of the change in the plan somehow, but he likely knew about the plan from the beginning. They committed to give a great offering. Wow! Here comes another extra-large gift! That's what the church would have thought. It was a wonderful thing that they had planned to do. The Bible also clearly indicates if they had not done it, they wouldn't have done anything wrong. They could have kept it. They could have sold it and used the proceeds for themselves. There was no compulsion. There was no reason they had to do this. They were free. So they committed to give a great offering. Jot this down. They conspired to hold some of it back secretly. They conspired to hold some of it back secretly. Here's where they went wrong. They planned to act like they were giving it all while taking some of it for themselves. We are also told that Satan was on the move. So there was a spiritual dimension behind this too. So they conspired to hold some of it back secretly The idea is it was clearly wrong what they were doing. They knew it was wrong, which is why they hid it and why they lied and why they didn't tell anybody about the change. They conspired to hold some of it back secretly. They were tempted by Satan to do this and they gave in. Jot this down, they lied, stole, and pretended. They lied, stole, and pretended. So they lied on the front end. Somehow there was a commitment made, we're going to give the whole amount. Then they lied in the process. Is this the full amount? Yes, this is the full amount. So they lied. They lied. Uh, They stole because this was a commitment they made. This this was going to... uh, This was a commitment, and then they took from something they had committed to the Lord. So therefore, it was theft. It was misappropriation. It was fraud. They lied. They stole. And they pretended. They pretended. They acted like they weren't lying. They acted like they weren't stealing. So because of this, this was a capital offense in God's presence. We know in the business world what these actions look like, lying, stealing, misappropriation, pretending, and fraud. We know what that sounds like. Right now, there's one of the biggest uh, fraud cases Uh, in history going on with FTX, a crypto exchange that was worth 32 billion dollars at one point and is now worthless because Sam Bankman Freed, the 30-year-old CEO who is now in huge trouble, um, let the thing collapse. At least one billion dollars is missing and there are billions more owed to creditors. Somebody was interviewed this week about him because uh, this guy's not coughing up the truth, and he's like kind of going around doing interviews, fixing his image. So check it out, this is one investor sharing how he feels about this. No questions off limits. What would you ask him? Uh, I would ask you, well, why did you do this, right? And what gives you the right to do this? How do you have, do you have a plan to get us our money back? Who is on your side? Well, why are you not in jail in the first place? This interview could have also taken place behind bars. There's a lot of questions I would have for the guy there. So, But we do know that he has an intention to defraud us. He has done a crime. He knows what he was doing. He was using users fund without permission. I do not expect to get straight answers from an individual like that. Self. So I hope you can see the severity of financially what they were doing. The world understands what this is like. Uh, this is not a case where what they were doing was no big deal. This was a giant deal. Um, and so I hope you can see clearly, plainly, why what they were doing was severely wrong. They committed to give a great offering. They conspired to hold some of it back. They did it because they were tempted by Satan. They lied, stole, and pretended, jot this down, and God judged their sin with immediate death. God judged their sin with immediate death. Uh, the nature of their deaths makes it clear that God put them to death, which is very rare in the New Testament. It happens also to Herod Agrippa, who was put to death. Uh, But very rare that God directly puts people to death like this, but it was clearly God in the passage who took their lives immediately on the spot. Hebrews 10.31 says this, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So that's what happened. Now jot this down. Why did it happen? That's kind of what you and I want to know, right? Am I close to my last breath? Is God waiting to throw the lightning bolt down at me? This is not the God that I seem to read about very often in the New Testament. Why did it happen? Um, Let's state the obvious. It does, at face value at first reading, seem like it's an overreaction. Seems like it could be too harsh. I mean, let's face it. How come others didn't die? If anyone should have died on the spot, shouldn't it have been Judas? When he went out and got the bag of silver to betray Jesus Christ, shouldn't Judas If there was a list of people who were going to die on the spot for what they were doing, don't you think Judas should have been up around the top of the list? Judas did not die by God's hand. Judas died by his own choices. He was allowed to live. What about Caiaphas? What about Pilate? Uh, What about about Peter? I never knew him! I never knew him! How is Peter standing in judgment over Ananias and Sapphira? Do you see why this is confusing? Do you see how there's some confusion here? Who lives? Who dies? You are right to conclude this is a special case. It is not the rule. It is a great exception. And you are right to ask the question, why did it happen? There is an ordinary pattern of dealing with sin found in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, you're not to stand back and wait for God to strike him dead. Right? You're to go to him and tell him his sin. Uh, if he repents, great, you've won your brother. If not, you take a witness... If that doesn't work, you tell it to the church. Then, if that doesn't work, the church puts him out of fellowship. That's called church discipline, which is a restorative process. Galatians 6.1, restore him gently. So God's heart, the rule, is to bring sin into the light, to increase the uh, pressure you're putting on the sinful person in the church, If they refuse to put them out of the church, to hand them over to Satan, that they might be taught not to do whatever they're doing, and then hopefully to welcome them back into the congregation with loving arms. This is the model found consistently throughout the book of Acts, 1 and 2 Corinthians. So there is a rule, and that didn't happen here, therefore this was an exception. Well, why did it happen? Jot this down. They lied to the Holy Spirit and tested God. They lied to the Holy Spirit and tested God. I think the easiest explanation of why this happened can be found in the book of Malachi. You can flip back there if you want, but I'll read it to you. Malachi was the last book in the Old Testament, written around 430 BC. God's last message to the Old Testament saints was found in the book of Malachi. And in Malachi, the priesthood was corrupt, the worship was routine, divorce was widespread, social justice was lacking, and tithing was neglected. There were problems with the offerings. So... In the book of Acts, these Old Testament passages were coming to life, okay? And this verse in Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, is Malachi 3 coming to life, okay? It was a fulfillment of Scripture. This is why it happened. They lied to the Holy Spirit and they tested God. In Malachi 3, verse 2, it says of the coming of the Messiah, who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Do you see the offerings are being purified when the Messiah comes? It goes on to say this in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and in your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Thereby, put me to the test." Says the Lord of hosts, if, will not open, uh, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You should already be seeing the parallels. God says here, you're, you're, you're not putting me to the test in your giving. You're not giving your offerings, your tithes. The word tithe means 10%. That's where the Israelites were to begin their giving. They weren't doing it and God says, you're robbing me. This is the only place in the Bible where God says, put me to the test. Put me to the test. Give, and I will provide. And then it goes on to say, uh, if you look at verse 14, you have said, people, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant, blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is what God's people were saying. The arrogant are getting away with it. They're not giving. They're putting you to the test, and they're getting away with it. Do you see how this parallels how Ananias and Sapphira put God to the test? And then finally it says in verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, meaning God is keeping perfect track of who fears him and who doesn't. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. Heading back to the book of Acts chapter 5, that passage just came into, into being. Will God discern who the righteous and who the wicked are? Will he purify his offerings? What about those who put God to the test with their money, with their offerings? Are they going to get away with it? The answer here is no, no, no. So we see the scripture being fulfilled because they were invited to put God to the test by giving, but instead they put God to the test by taking, by stealing. Therefore, they became the fulfillment of a tragic prophecy that they would have known about from when they were young. So they lied to the Holy Spirit and tested God. Jot this down. During an era of tremendous revelation. They lied to the Holy Spirit and tested God during an era of tremendous revelation. When there were greater periods of revelation in Scripture, there was a greater expectation of immediate obedience. Okay, so when the mountain of Sinai was on fire, you were told if you go touch it, you're going to die right now. Okay, mountain on fire. Immediate repercussions if you disobey. So greater revelation brought greater and more immediate consequences. So this was an era of the fullness of revelation as Jesus had come down. And there there was a greater expectation of immediate obedience because there would be higher stakes and faster judgment. The Israelites in the wilderness often died same day because they saw the pillar of fire. They saw the cloud of smoke. Moses' face glowed and miraculous food came to them every day. If they messed with God, they paid with their lives because there was no excuse. So during an era, era of tremendous revelation, Ananias and Sapphira sinned. Jot this down. During an offering before the apostles. So they lied to the Holy Spirit, tested God during an era of tremendous revelation, during an offering before the apostles. So authority was given to the apostles, and it was unprecedented. Unprecedented. They could do miracles. They could work wonders. They could raise the dead. They could write the Bible. They, as authority figures, their names are going to be written on the foundation levels of heaven. The authority Jesus gave to them was unprecedented. So they sinned during an offering, which is in God's presence, before the apostles, which were God's ambassadors on earth. Therefore, their defiance and disregard was staggering. A little humor I will inject into the sermon here, just to give you a bit of a break from the gravity of it. Home Alone 2 is, of course, one of the most favorite and cherished Christmas movies of all time. And in Home Alone 2, we'll put the picture up on the screen, Marv and Harry were deciding their next crime, and they decided to rob a children's toy store on Christmas. And here's the dialogue. There's nobody dumb enough to knock off a toy store on Christmas Eve. And then he says, oh, yes, there is. And here's what I would say. There's nobody dumb enough to steal from God in church in front of an apostle after Jesus came and rose from the grave. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, yes, there is. Satan was right there maneuvering. Jot this down. Because Satan was working to pollute the church. They lied to the Holy Spirit, tested God during an area of tremendous revelation, during an offering before the apostles because Satan was working to pollute the church. This was Satan's next move. Judas, of course, was also a thief and a liar and he killed Jesus. So here's a clear attempt of the Prince of Darkness to infiltrate the church of God. Now what was Satan's strategy? We don't know, because God ended it right at the beginning, but it's very unlikely these two were just going to pad their retirement funds and then stop. Okay, there was a plan here. A couple chapters away, they're going to install deacons. I don't know. Would they have risen up? Would they have continued this charade? Whatever it was, Satan was going to plant them and use them to destroy the church of God. Now, that's what we don't know. But we know what Satan wanted to do. Maybe they would have sustained this devious, camera-ready posture of charity. But God drove Satan out of the church just like he drove Satan out of the Garden of Eden. This is God being faithful to his church because Satan was on the move. Why did it happen? They lied to the Spirit during an era of tremendous revelation, during an offering before the apostles because Satan was working to pollute the church. Wow. All right, so we know what happened. We know why it happened. Number three, write this down. what do we learn about God? What do we learn about God? Let's reflect on the theology here because we have a lot to learn about God. Jot this down. God is holy and he judges all sin. God is holy and he judges all sin. It's clear in verse 3 that it says Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. To the Holy Spirit. And then it's clear in verse 4 that he says you have not lied to man but to God. In verse 9, Peter said, you have agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord. So we see some Trinitarian references here. Uh, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, we're working in, in tandem here, and we see that their sin was in God's holy presence. And God is holy, and he judges all sin. Isaiah 55 9 says this, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God's holiness means he is high, far above all in greatness and glory. And then 1 John 1, 5 says this, God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. So he is high above all and he is set apart in purity from all sin. Therefore, no sin can abide in God's presence. Sin in its smallest dose is a fatal substance in our soul. And that's good news, because when you get to heaven, you won't want any sin there at all. If you get to heaven, and on the first day your iPhone is stolen, it's not heaven. (laughs) Heaven with sin is not heaven. You long in the deepest places of your heart for a world without sin. And that is God's holy presence that will provide it. God sees all of our sin, in Acts 124, he was called God who knows the hearts of all, the cardiognostes. He sees all of our sin. He is therefore holy, 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 and he judges all sin. Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't get judged because they were more sinful than you and me. We all have the same sin problem, but the severity had taken them to the very end, and there are some sins that lead to death, the Bible said. Jot this down. We are sinful and must be saved from judgment. We are sinful and must be saved from judgment. So this is the gospel, and this passage doesn't change the gospel. This passage, you know, we were told there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. This doesn't change that. That's still true. So we're sinful and we must be saved from judgment. We learn a lot about ourselves. We are tempted to do evil by Satan the book of James makes it clear that we're not tempted by God it's our own desires that Satan arouses we're not told if they were greedy and they wanted more money we're not told why if they wanted the image more than anything to be to be you know seen as charitable or wealthy we don't know what their exact motive was we know they had a money problem and we know they had an image problem and it was stage five terminal spiritual cancer So we are all tempted in many ways. Jesus Christ, we know, entered into our world. That's the Christmas story. He took on flesh and he became fully man and fully God. That's good news because he's the only one who was without sin. Jesus is the only one who never sinned his whole life. So we all sin in many ways. And then we learn about the nature of sin. We are doomed to die because the wages of sin is death. We were all born on death row, and Jesus came into this world to save us. Look, if you don't define sin properly, you're not going to prepare for judgment properly. If you think you're just guilty of a few little oopses, little white lies, a couple boo-boos here, and they're nothing like those bad sinners that live next to me, I'm way better than my brother. If you think you're doing pretty good in God's grade book, you're not defining sin properly. You're doomed to die. You're doomed to die. God is delaying your judgment because he's willing that none should perish but that all should repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. So the nature of sin, the wages of sin, is death. At the end of your life, without Christ, without God, you will be handed a paycheck for the the entirety of your effort here on earth and it will read death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. We're working through several areas of theology here. Anthropology talks about the doctrine of man, we are sinful and tempted. Hamartiology talks about the doctrine of sin, we're doomed to die because sin is fatal to the soul. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God, the gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you received the free gift? Of eternal life. God is willing that none should perish. You would be so wrong to read this story and to be like, oh my goodness, God's gonna push the lightning button and kill me. No, no. He wants to save you. That's why Jesus came down. And to be saved is not, well, I'm gonna be on my best behavior now. No, no, that's not it either. It's not it either. You're saved by a free gift from Jesus Christ, and that transforms your heart, and that That's what makes you want to love God. Before you think God should just be nicer, maybe you're still kind of feeling like God got a little carried away here, and Ananias and Sapphira, kind of a no-big-deal thing. Remember, we're all going to appear before God's judgment seat. They just got there sooner. You're going too. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the lives we've lived in the body. Every careless word will be brought into light the bible says for some men their deeds go ahead of them into judgment meaning it's clear why they went for others their deeds trail behind which means once they get there there will be surprises we are sinful and we must be saved from judgment that's what we learn about god jot this down and the church must be protected from sin and satan so what are we learning about god god is holy he judges all sin that's theology proper Uh, We also learned in that that the Holy Spirit lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. So that's the deity of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is God, nature of God. We learned about ourselves. We're sinful and must be saved from judgment. And now the doctrine of the church, that's called ecclesiology. The church must be protected from sin. And Satan, that's angelology, lot of theology intersecting here. The first use of the word church, uh, ecclesia, is found here by Luke. And when it comes to... The church of God, these are the people who were called out, called out from darkness into light, called out from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. The church must be protected from sin and from Satan. Uh, We all sin. And in 1 John, we're told, hey, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. But what do you do with it? You confess it. He's faithful and just to forgive you, right? That's what we do. Confess your sins. Galatians 6.1, if the brother's caught in sin, restore him gently right? Restore him gently. So you might say, I've got sin in my soul. Welcome to the club. Okay, that's what we're here for. But when it comes to sinning with a high hand, when it comes to clenching your fist and doubling down, when it comes to the bold, brazen, unbelievable, unthinkable, unfathomable sin like we read about today, that's going to lead to judgment. I will not let it go. In fact, I'm going to normalize it, glamorize it, standardize it. Now you've got a problem. The church has to be protected from this kind of sin, And from Satan. Satan is real. There's a spiritual realm. Right now, it's filled with angels. Demons are fallen angels. There's plenty of them to go around the whole world. Satan is the prince of darkness. He's in charge of all of them. But he is under God's authority. He cannot do anything beyond what God allows him to do. That's good news. Satan and his demons were created for a good purpose, to be messengers of God, to be agents of uh, creation, to be messengers and servants in the church, and uh, they blew it, and they fell. So now he wants to destroy everything that's precious to God. That includes the church. Luke only mentions Satan twice in the book of Luke and twice in the book of Acts, so it's important when it comes up that we pay attention, because it's rare. Satan is on the move. Uh, Satan, if you could peel away the layers and look into the spiritual realm right now, there would be angels and demons in this very room. Very unlikely Satan himself is here. He's got much bigger things to worry about, but Satan is a catch-all term for his kingdom. How does he work? He persecutes the church. That's happening right now to our brothers and sisters all around the world. He pollutes the church by bringing sin into the church. He pollutes worldliness. Uh, There can also be false doctrine. He pollutes the doctrine and he pollutes the lives of the people. He distracts. He distracts with things that are not vital, crucial, and he divides the church through relational uh, explosions. Satan's plan is to persecute, pollute, distract, and divide. And when he gets into the leaders or those who have influence, there can be big problems in the church. So the church must be protected from sin and Satan. So we know what happened now. We know why it happened. We've learned a ton about God. Number four, how should we respond? Well, what should we do about this? How should we respond? Well, when it comes to application, like I said, this is a special case. So we're not to walk around terrified That God's going to somehow hit the, you know, the death button. Um, There should be a healthy fear. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There should be a healthy fear of the living God. Uh, But jot this down. Here's some practical applications that spring right out of the text. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. While it's lamentable that Ananias and Sapphira gave in, it's encouraging to see how many other people were not captivated by that. The church overall was in a wonderful place. They were one heart and soul. They they were getting it right. They were crossing barriers of culture and race and and economics. Uh, They were speaking the truth. They were suffering. They were getting it right. So they were resisting the devil. And yet these two didn't. And so because of the healthy community, God's spirit revealed this at the beginning and Satan fled from them. You remember the hymn, right? For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. If you give him a beachhead in your life, he will destroy you. He will destroy your marriage. He will destroy your family. He will destroy your church. He's not going to stop with just a little bit. So we have to realize that we have to resist the devil. I don't know where you're being tempted right now, but ask yourself, where are you being pushed into sin. Who is it that's doing the pushing? What is it that's doing the pushing? Jesus told us to take drastic action to remove sin from our lives. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, The idea there is amputation is serious, severe, bloody, and permanent. So you've got to take serious, drastic action to remove when you are being tempted to do evil. You can't play around with fire. Who can scoop fire into his lap and not be burned? What is pushing you? Who is pushing you into sin? And who is pulling you away from godly things? Who is pulling you away from church? Who or what is pulling you away from your Bible? Where's the push? Where's the pull? If you don't see it, ask people around you. Where do you see that I'm struggling? Do you see any areas in my life where you feel like I'm slipping? Are you concerned about anything that I've said? Typically when people are in a season of temptation and struggling... Uh, They get quiet and they get alone because sin grows in the darkness. If you're covering anything up, that's where Satan is pressing on you, pushing on you. Uh, If your conscience is on fire, remember your conscience is not perfect, but it is helpful at locating beep like a smoke detector. Beep, 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 something is going on in your heart. And maybe that's God's way of convicting you by his spirit so you can bring it into the light while there's still time. Where are you thinking wrong? Where where are you believing things that are not consistent with Scripture? Where are you behaving wrong? Where are you veering from what you know is good? Are there secrets? Are there lies? It's time to win your battle with temptation. It's drastic action time. Uh, When you hear a sermon like this and God brings you to church, and this is the passage, this is your 911 call right here, right now. And if you take the battery out of the smoke detector... And and singe your conscience, and and turn away from people who are trying to pull you back from that. Watch out. Sin and temptation works like you're going down a hallway, and at the beginning there's a lot of doors and a lot of windows, and it's pretty easy to get out of it. But the further you go down, there's a couple of windows, and then by the end there's maybe one way up there, and you got to jump to reach it. There comes a point when you're trapped and you can't get out, and then the pain starts. And some sins do lead to death. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Jot this down. Repent of known sin and be forgiven. Repent of known sin and be forgiven. No matter your sin, Jesus paid for it on the cross. No matter your sin, Jesus paid for it on the cross. There are people who, they, you know, they know they've sinned. They know they've blown it. They're still here. They're, they're like, I don't even know how I am alive after all the things I've done. And now you're kind of covered in shame and guilt. And you don't want to tell people about it. Because you don't know if a person like you can be forgiven. And look, I've got great news for you. Uh, The Bible is clear that Romans 2, 3 to 6, you're, you're given time to repent. God is giving you time to repent. Revelation 2, 21 to 22 talks about grave immoral sin, sexual sin in a church by a woman who was teaching in that church. And God said, I've given her time to repent. But then guess what? Time was up. So, God gives you time to repent. And maybe you still have time to repent, or maybe you kind of ruined a part of your life or all of your life. I just want you to know if you repent of known sin, you can be forgiven. Peter himself denied the Lord three times. Paul, who would go on to write most of the New Testament, killed Christians. So, there's no such thing as a sin that God won't forgive in your life. But you have to repent and you have to be forgiven. You have to confess your sin and you have to find forgiveness. God wants you to be set free to forgive you so you don't have to be covered in shame and disgrace. God wants you to be saved. That's why warning stories like this happen in the Bible. Repent. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You can confess any sin and repent of any sin and be forgiven while there's still time. Repent of known sin and be forgiven. Today, resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Repent of known sin and be forgiven. And jot this down. Give greatly to God with a pure, sincere heart. Clearly featured in the text here was the generosity of God's people. Chapter 4, verse 34. was not a needy person among them. See the power of generosity when God's people were giving. And they were giving greatly. And they were giving from a pure heart. They were laying it at the apostles' feet. This is what Jesus, in part, came to do and to die for, to purify people's hearts that we might love the Lord with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. That's what leads to generous giving. Uh, When it comes to giving generously to God through the church, the church models for us this generous giving. This is love for people taking care of others, and this is love for God that shows up in the offerings. So a good question that comes out of this text is, are you giving greatly to God with a pure, sincere heart? Um, Some in church give generously and regularly and cheerfully. Um, Some don't give. Maybe they haven't been taught on giving yet. They don't know how. Um, Others have, but they just don't give. Some don't give very much. This would be a good passage that presents you with a clear invitation to give generously to the Lord. And I would just invite you, based on what we're seeing here in God's Word and back in Malachi chapter 3, if you are a Christian and God has saved you, He wants you to give generously to the mission, to the work to the church, to the Lord. So if you're not giving in Malachi 3, that was called robbing God, today would be a great day to repent of that, to say, Why am I not giving to the God who gave it all for me? Why am I not giving anything? When this is the text and this is the scripture and it's a boom, a straight hit to the soul, maybe this is a time for you to say, You know what? There's no excuse. I'm gonna give generously to God with a pure, sincere heart. This is an invitation to repent and be generous. This could even be an invitation to prompt some who the Lord has truly blessed to give greatly, like Barnabas. See, those who were prosperous in that day, if they were giving like anybody else, they, they really weren't making a genuine sacrifice. So they said, you know what, we got, i got to give more. There's a world to reach. There's people in need. You know, why am I giving this? i got to really give greatly. So maybe you feel convicted that God wants you because he's prospered you to give greatly to God with a pure and sincere heart. I'm talking to a generous church. Over the last 13 years, our church has given generously and helped plant churches to give to missionaries and to support through benevolence offerings. Our church is truly a generous church. So like this passage in Acts, this wasn't put in the Bible because they were lacking generosity. It's not like after this, Peter said, see, now will you people start giving? That's not what's going on. They were a generous church, but these folks were trying to take advantage of that. So I would just say, join in the generosity that you see in Scripture. Know that God sees your offering. Know that he sees the sacrifice. Jesus said of the widow, right? She put in just two small coins, more than anybody else that day. He sees the heart. He sees the sacrifice. Have a generous heart because you're fired up for the mission and you care for other people. Put God first in your giving. He says, put me to the test and see if I won't provide for you. This is how the church was growing. And I want you to know that what you invest in the kingdom of God will matter in a million years. And Jesus is worth every sacrifice we make to him. Well, this is a heavy message, and it's really good for our church to hear it. What happened? They committed to give a great offering and conspired and lied, and God judged them. Why? They lied to the Spirit during an era of tremendous revelation, during an offering before the apostles, and Satan was at work. And what do we learn about God? He's holy. We're sinful. The church needs to be protected. And how do we respond? Resist the devil, repent of known sin, and give greatly to God. Hey, let's take all of this to the Lord in prayer right now. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that in the Scripture you include Warning passages like this. Uh, It's like a fork in the road. The church was so beautiful. The church was so full of people who were meeting to worship you, teaching sound doctrine, lifting one another up, standing face to face, toe to toe with the authorities of their day, and not backing down and giving generously to the mission and to the church. Wow! No wonder Satan attacked them. Father, I just pray right now that you would help us to hear this sobering message. I pray that we would fear you because you are the holy God who made heaven and earth, who's high above all that we know or think or believe. Oh Lord, and yet you sent Jesus down to save us. Thank you that all of our sins can be washed away because of his great sacrifice. You are willing that none should perish, but that all should repent. And Lord, I pray that out of forgiven hearts, we would love one another we would be people of integrity when we sin that we would confess it and be forgiven and that we would give generously to see this world reach for christ and to see our brothers and sisters well provided for lord this passage is, is very heavy and i don't know how people are responding to it but in their hearts may they repent of any known sin right now may they commit to having an open true genuine heart toward you and toward other people May they see that this passage is in the church to warn and protect us, not to make us feel condemned or judged. And I pray that through Jesus Christ, we would be able to take hold of the life that is truly life. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.